This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The Chinese economy remains an important focus for the rebound needed for the global economy, but the Chinese government announced that it was doing away with its one-child-per-family policy, something designed to control the then-population explosion in that country. It was a, it has been around for about 35 years or so, but does this change speak to a new philosophy for the government as a way to maybe increase growth in the future? Take a look at this. We're joined by our friends Jacques Delisle, Penn Law Professor and also Director of the Center for East Asian Studies here at the University of Pennsylvania, and also Minwa Zhao from the Wharton School. Great to have you both back in the studio. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Great to have you. Uh, Minwa, first reaction when you heard this announcement come out last week? Well, I don't think it's a big shock to anyone. Um, it's not a secret that China is facing a demographic crisis, quote-unquote crisis, in the future, the so-called 4-2-1 reverse pyramid structure is, um, you know, basically indicates huge burden for, you know, healthcare and elderly care. In the coming years, um, the rising labor prices in factories has been going on for a while. So I don't think it's a secret that uh, to see that coming. And also in the past several years, we see the loosening uh, of this policy by allowing families with, you know, either parent being the, uh, the single child to have two children. And the fact that that did not generate a baby boom, yeah. I think gives the authority a little comfort in further relaxation. Jacques? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not a surprise in that the policy has been undergoing a relaxation. When the new authorities came in a few years ago, this was already in the in the cards for those who were themselves uh, single child um, children who were growing up to have families. But you know, basically, China's already hit peak labor, uh, and what you've got is uh, an aging population. And the inverted age pyramid was going to make that quite serious. So we're going to have a lot of older people dependent on a small number of younger people, and there's a sense that that's really not a great position to be in. You don't want to have a Japanese demographic profile and a per capita income in the upper middle income range. It's a bad recipe. And they're layering onto that commitments, which are going to be expensive. One of the other things to come out of the recent plenum, which was where we got this sketch of the 13th five-year plan, uh, was a commitment to extend old age insurance to all Chinese. So that's upping the burden on, on the working age population. And I think you know, that feeds into the same set of concerns. The five-year plan, uh, what is the, the, the basis now behind it, and what do they hope to see in, in the Chinese economy going forward in, in the short term? Well, I think um, there's no details coming out yet, and uh, uh, people are trying to figure out what's going on by reading the speeches uh, by the premier and so on. Um, I Frankly, from my own perspective, I think the the implementation of the plan is way more important than what's actually on the paper. Um, you know, in the past couple of days, people were guessing what's on the paper, but yesterday the arrest of the uh, private equity owner Xu uh, Xiang got you know people talking. It's it's less about what the regulation is on the stock market. It's more important how the regulation is going to be implemented 
and how people will react to it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the last point that uh, Mignon just hit on, which is this anti-corruption issue, was one of the things people were watching for because, of course, that's been a signature policy of the Xi Jinping regime is to go after corruption, uh, mm-hmm. particularly under the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection under Wang Qishan, who's one of the Politburo Standing Committee members. We're talking about a task that was given to the top elite. And one sense was that maybe we had reached sort of peak anti-corruption drive <laughs> and the focus would start to shift to the economy. But we've seen uh, in prior to the plenary session a statement uh, that the discipline inspection folks, that the anti-corruption watchdogs, were in fact going to start focusing on the financial sector, including the state-linked financial sector. So that's still going on. As far as the economic elements, I mean, yes, it's very sketchy. And we won't know all the details until the National People's Congress session convenes next March, which itself has to follow the National, Defor- uh, National Development Reform Commission's approval of the plans. This is, in a weird way, kind of a vestige of old Soviet-era structures. <laughs> But the content has changed. And we do see some, uh, some fairly familiar imperatives about what the economic agenda is going to be going forward. Yeah. So we know what the slogans are going to be. It's going to be higher quality, efficiency, equality, and sustainability. That's a mouthful. It's got a bunch of different imperatives, which sometimes cut in opposite <laughs> it's about direction. about five different pieces to that alone, It right? is, yeah. some of which involve trade-offs among themselves. Yeah. Um, we've seen a reiteration of something that goes back to Deng Xiaoping and the idea of creating a moderately well-off society. This is actually an old Confucian term, a Xiaokang Shule, a sort of moderately well-off, moderately prosperous society. The goal is to do that by the centenary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, which will come up in 2021. And if you go through the, the specifics, you know, we see a lot of familiar policy emphases, but Minyan is absolutely right. It depends on how it's going to be implemented. So we see an emphasis on the innovation economy. That's not new. We see an emphasis on modernizing agriculture. That's a little new, uh, and it's certainly important. We see a, the familiar shift from, uh, from, cons- from um, uh, manufacturing and exports and investment toward consumption and services. That's not very new. The emphasis on service may be a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, uh, emphasized than it used to be. We're seeing talk about encouraging startups, uh, particularly in the tech sector. That's also not terribly new, and it comes with its own questions about whether they really will follow through on that, given what that sector tends to be like. And we see a lot on um, on the green uh, issue, basically trying to reduce emissions, trying to clean up the economy, some, trying to clean up the sort of smokestack base, if you will, of the economy, make power plants more efficient. That's also not terribly new, but it's now at that top tier of goals. But it is interesting that that kind of is is one of the issues that is really talked about a lot around the globe right now, is the effect that China has potentially to move forward and really cut back some of these emission levels, which is something that obviously they're going to feel a little bit of pressure from the United States from various sources, especially when we have uh, the uh, the meeting in Paris coming up in, what, a little over a month, correct? Right. right. Now, I think the environment is the thing that the Chinese themselves feel the most about. Right? You see the smogs in the city, and that's, you know, they bear the the biggest burden on uh, what's being created uh, in the environment. So um, that's not surprising. This is also incentive for companies to innovate and to move up the, the value chain, which is also something the government has been pushing uh, hard on. Uh, and I agree with, with Jacques that the, the devil is in the detail. The, the question is how they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, innovation, right? We've already seen uh, Shanghai municipal government talking about loosening control. You know, we need a more um, free environment for innovation to happen. On the other hand, you continue to see uh, hand-picked projects, heavy subsidies on R&D, you know, uh, flagship projects. This morning we read about uh, the new commercial airplane rolled out, yeah. which obviously has a strong state backing on it. So 
I don't think uh, the government or the society um, has been clear on how these things should be done. Everyone agree we need to move on the uh, value chain. We need to cut the environment, uh, the uh, emission. We need to promote innovation. But whether we do that with a laissez-faire environment, you know, where you allow entrepreneurs to pursue the opportunities, or you hand-picking project with strong government um, support. Um, I don't think there's a clear roadmap yet. The, the the introduction of the airliner was actually something I wanted to bring up as well because mm-hmm. it was interesting. When I saw the stories pop out, I was like, oh, really? Wow, that's that's very interesting. And it's going to be an area to watch for, for yeah. China going forward, because as they have said, they would like to be less dependent on companies like Boeing and Airbus. But obviously, a lot of countries would like to be less dependent <laughs> on those two companies as well. But for, for China, obviously, with the companies they have there and obviously the support of, of the state government to be able to make that push that's a that is a potentially huge big business aspect for china well it's a risky one too um so you know that china is continuing to buy from boeing and airbus you know large quantities um and the the chinese plane will not uh, be in the air until like three years later uh two or three years later so uh, there will be a lot of tests, and uh, you know, getting the FAA approval can be a huge challenge. Um, so, yeah. I mean, they've been building toward it. I mean, now Boeing yeah. and Airbus source a huge uh, portion of their components sure, in yeah. China. Yeah. This has been the really leading edge stuff that has been not produced yet in China. And you know, China has this gigantic domestic market for airliners. It's huge. It's growing, and there will be a certain, even absent state direction, there'll be a certain bias toward at least buying some equipment uh, from the Chinese airliner if it proves fully viable. What's interesting is China has come in at the niche above where the non-Airbus, non-Boeing people have been operating, right? It's not doing the Embraer or the uh, CRJ sure. thing. It's, yeah. it's going mm-hmm. for for the, the big scale project, which is partly a vanity thing, but I think it's also partly a reflection of this uh, this potentially huge market and this determination to move up into higher tech uh, industries. It wouldn't seem to make a, a probably a lot of fiscal sense to, to do like a, a, an Embraer type of company at this point. You need big jets in China. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're talking about, you know, wanting to move thousands of people on a daily basis, so, you know, don't, don't skimp on the, don't skimp on the seats in the, in the airplane in this case. Right, it's already true in China that the, the sort of average flight length of a big jet is is just small because there's just so much demand. I mean, you Mm -hmm. get these 747s on three hour runs because there's just that much capacity. I think the hope is to go, uh, repeat the success of the high speed rail in the sense that, you know, initially there's a lot of load Learning, um, I you know, you decide how to interpret the word learning, but uh, you know, basically the uh, learning by doing kind of thing. We, you know, we we build the railroad uh, in China, and because the market is large enough, there's a lot of learning by doing in the process, and there's a lot of process innovation, right. which is unique to China, uh, China which further cut down the cost, and then hopefully one day you can bring the kind of learning and the capabilities to the global market. Um, for the airline, uh, for for the airplane, I think it will be uh, following the same route. Uh, at the very beginning, most of the demand will come from domestic airlines, and then, you know, when the learning builds up and when the cost goes down, uh, maybe one day it will have global competitiveness. I was going to say you mentioned that you know getting the approvals from the FAA, but realistically, I mean, they would focus specifically on their market first, and maybe the Asian market in, in, in realm. Obviously, they still have to get approvals, but still focus on that niche area first, and then you can kind of expand out. And FAA would 
observe what's going on in China, you know, the, the flight experience, the, the defect rate, and so on and so forth. So China has the advantage of, you know, being a big country and having all the opportunities for the experiment, but, you know, if anything happens, it's not like we have a big market, you know, we can, we can do anything on our own. Um, the world is watch, watching how, how the planes perform in the air. Comments uh, as well about uh, the recent statements uh, uh, coming out of China in terms of what they would like to see over this five years in terms of the growth. Uh, the number I saw was at least six and a half percent they would like to see, uh, which is interesting because obviously seven has kind of been that benchmark that people have thrown out in, right. the, in the financial industry. But it almost seems like by saying six and a half, it's like, OK, we're going to kind of take a half step back. And if we are above that number, we've done our job even better, right. and the expectations are, are, are a little bit less. I mean, I think it's it's a realism setting in. I mean, it's being called the new normal. Yeah. Uh, Li Keqiang, the premier, and Xi Jinping, the president and party general secretary, have been talking about the new normal of slower growth. And the, the phrase now is a medium high-speed growth economy, and the number you see is 6.5, 6.6. But, you know, seven is what we've been hearing lately, but it's been a steady ratcheting down. I mean, we used to talk double-digit growth every year, and then we talked 7.5 as being the number you had to hit to create uh, job demand and things like that. And now it's down to 6.5, 6.6. Uh, that's still a pretty robust growth rate. Uh, but I think A lot it's, better than what we're <laughs> seeing over here. Yeah, but I think it's realism about what they think they can achieve. And it puts them more or less on track for the macro per capita income targets that they've set and the 2020, uh, 2021 uh, right. doubling of the economy size. Uh, so these are all... These are all kind of linked numbers. Uh, I think the concern has now become, can you sustain 6.5, 6.6 over the long haul, and or can you do it without doing other things that are destructive to other goals sure. they put yep. on the table? Yep. Right. Meanwhile. Certainly the investment has been at unsustainable <laughs> levels. So um, the past several years, investment continued to be the engine, of, the main engine of growth, despite repeated um, effort to, you know, transition the economy to a consumer economy. Um, I think the consumer sector is doing fine. And think, you know, if you look at manufacturing, partly it's overcapacity and all the investment happening in the past several years. And sure. partly it's it's a maturing economy. You know, when, when I visited a lot of the factories, the companies and so on, you don't see the kind of hunger you saw. 15, mm. 20 years ago, like you, you burn night oil, oils, you do work day and night, you do whatever you can to earn the last penny possible. The younger generation, you know, this is going back to the one child policy. Um, people are saying, oh, there's a shortage of labor, but urban college graduates are not finding jobs, yeah. right? And, and they're willing to earn 1,800 yuan per month by being a freelance cartoonist for you know, <laughs> online blogs, then working in the factories. You know, factory workers are paid about 5,000 yuan a month in my uh, hometown. And the nannies are paid 6,000 yuan a month in, uh, in urban areas. And yet, you know, you know, young people are willing to take this. So there's a lot of, it's not an, uh, only economic transition, it's a demographic transition too. The, the kind of hunger uh, we saw uh, well, is in, no longer there. In some respects then, from what you, you just laid out, it, it sounds, it's a little bit like what, in some respects, we'd seen here in the United States yeah. in the last couple of decades, mm -hmm. in that just the manufacturing jobs were just not as appealing as some of the other options that were out there. And obviously part of this is because 
of the digital society we have and all these other options that are there now that weren't there 20 years ago. Yeah, you, when you don't want, have to worry about the meal next day, guess what? You know, you pursue your dream, you do what... Um, so I'm not saying that's the main reason. What I'm saying is that the slowdown is expected for these two main reasons. One, there's a lot of overbuilding, overcapacity and uh, investment. And, you know, there has to be some correction. To, um, and, and the second is it is a maturing market, not not to say it's already matured, but yeah. uh, it's no longer the kind of economy we saw 20 years ago. But even the slow change in, in terms of uh, the one child policy, mm-hmm. uh, seemingly because uh, of the age demographic uh, over in China and the, and the large number of people that are getting out of the workforce, you still have a lot of people that are, you know, younger and being in that workforce. But, you know, are uh, was is China at a time where this policy really it kind of fits because of the potential of need for for bodies 15 20 years down the road is that is that is that a fair statement yeah, I think it is. I mean, what you've got is, uh, you know, China is not going to have inbound immigration. I mean, it's just yeah. not. It's not part of the tradition of approaching these things, and it's just on such a large scale that the number of people would have to come in to kind of balance the the distribution curve is huge. And so, a lot of the policies you're seeing are meant to find a way to deal with a relatively labor-scarce economy at a period when you still aren't all that developed by international standards. So it's it's things like trying to move up the value chain quickly. So among the other policies that have come out of the recent plenum that we expect to see in the five-year plan are expanding secondary education. They've already expanded university education, arguably too much right. for the yeah. reasons that Binyuan uh, has gone into, but expanding secondary, expanding vocational, technical, sort of raising the human capital at the lower end of that, right. continuing to urbanize, which will bring people into the service sectors where yeah. they can help uh, with an aging population. Uh, just a lot of these things which seem focused on dealing with that issue. But there's still also a lot of, as we've talked on this show before, is the need to improve the infrastructure as well. There are pieces that, that need to be improved, and that is, it's basically similar to manufacturing, right. which are those jobs that maybe aren't as appealing. Well, you need the other things to move together with infrastructure in order to um, increase the return of investment. Yeah. Know, so um, I, I think uh, some are talking about this policy coming a little too late in the sense that uh, the younger women who are in the prime age for childbearing uh, are mostly single child themselves. Sure, so, yeah, yeah. you know, they're, they're already eligible for second child, you know, in the, in the past several years, but the birth rate increase has been way lower than what the authority expected. And so this new policy simply applies to people my age and older, which are kind of too old, um, to to be the main uh, main push for uh, for the birth rate increase. So um, I don't know. There's a lot of debate on the effectiveness of this policy mm-hmm. to increase the birth rate in China, and, and we'll just wait and see. And of so, course, it's a long lag, right? I mean, if you're having children now, you're talking 18, right. 20 years before the payoff yeah. comes yeah. in. In the meantime, it's very expensive. Well, and that's why I wondered, you know, if, if because now might be the timing of it because of the fact that you're, even though you have that 15 or 20-year lag, a majority of those people in 15 to 20 years that are getting close to retirement are going to be there. And, and you know, and as you alluded to before, the, the, the cost of health care for those people is going to skyrocket in the right. next in the next 15 years. Right. Right. And they just made the commitment to fund that in a way they hadn't earlier, universalizing old, a- old age sure. health care. Right. And of course, you know, the, one of the reasons that this has become a big problem in terms of birth rates is the generation that is now having children is itself a small generation because yep. it's the product of the single child family mm-hmm. policy. If those people in turn don't hit replacement rate, 
you've got you've got a, essentially a population death spiral. I, explain the, the 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 reason behind why the universalizing of health healthcare for older people was so important for China going forward. Well, if you look at at polling of, of Chinese, and it's not one hundred percent reliable, but on, on issues like this, it's probably pretty good. You see huge complaints about uh, an unsafe environment, whether it's air pollution, water pollution, uh, food safety. That's way, way high up. And another one is essentially economic insecurity. Uh, and that covers a sure. bunch of things. But one of the things that it covers is what happens when I get old. Because the, the, the socialist safety net is long since gone yeah. with the market reforms. The family safety net of multi-generational families uh, where you can count on kids who are now very few in number, remember, yeah. uh, supporting an older generation. That's kind of come apart. So it really is something where it, the only the only two substitutes are a state social welfare policy, a social insurance policy, which has been a commitment, or people saving massively for their own retirement, which has been tough, especially for people who aren't in the kind of jobs that have done very well in the new economy. Yeah, I think it's a necessary step to transition the economy from investment driven to uh, consumption driven, um, and healthcare education. Um, housing. These are very important oh. agendas on people's uh, spending plan. And uh, if you know that you will face a huge, you know, burden to take care of yourself in you know days, then you stop spending now and start saving. So um, I I don't have statistics on how big this chunk is um, because in my hunch in the urban areas housing is an even bigger concern housing not only for yourself but for your children sure, you know, yeah. in case they get married they need an uh, apartment um, these are all important hurdles uh, on the path to consumption driven economy so um, if we want investment to come down and consumption to go up this is necessary. It's very interesting as we're talking with uh, Mimon Zhao of the Wharton School and also uh, Jacques Delisle, who is the director of the Center for East Asian Studies. We're talking about the, the Chinese economy and the changes that uh, are potentially coming forth uh, in the country uh, over the next few years. One of the topics we're talking about is the change in the uh, one child per family policy. But it, as you alluded to, it, it's it, it's... It's now being put in play, but there have kind of been ways around it. it obviously, if you are a, 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 an only child when you're at that point, that group of, of, of women that are in that kind of realm, is it similar to what we're seeing here in the United States where so many more people are waiting longer to have children because they want to have that professional career, or at least they want to have that, that professional base first before they have children? Right. And I also see discussions on social media that that generation don't even know how to raise a family with multiple children, and they don't have incentive <laughs> to, because they grow up just fine, they enjoy their status as the only child in the family, and the the incentive to have a big family is way lower, um, you know, unless those who grew up with siblings who would like to see the same kind of situation in their own home. Um, and, and also... The fact that it's getting, you know, uh, a, a lot more expensive in urban areas to raise a child. Uh, so this is an interesting sociology study. You know, the the moment your parents start to spend so much energy and money on your education and on every aspect of your life, you expect to do the same for your children. Yeah. And given that expectation, having one child seems to be the way to go for, for most people. So this is... Uh, more lingering effect of the one-child policy. And in the rural areas, they're not constrained uh, 
to begin with. So then, then it, with this somewhat being phased out now, and, and obviously it'll happen over the next couple of years, mm-hmm. when you look back at the, this last 40-year period with the, with the one-child policy in place, what do you think will kind of be the, the, the thought process, how effective it was? Were there things that you know, could have been changed? You know, will it be seen a, as something that was a, a very good policy for China for that period of time? I think it's probably going to be seen as oversteer in addressing a significant problem. I mean, China, you know, had had a big population, low level of, of uh, of economy, um, low level of productivity, and the momentum was there. Right, people kept having more kids, so something something had to be done to restrain that. Now, the way it was implemented was, in some cases, really quite cruel yeah. uh, and and cost the government a lot of legitimacy. And enforcing the family planning policy was one of the things that created resentment toward local level officials, particularly in the countryside. You know, you know coerced sterilizations and abortions and things like that. Now, it turns out that, you know, this was going to work its way through to some degree because the sort of economic social forces that Minyuan's been talking about. As people urbanize, as education becomes expensive, as you know, people get very immersed in their careers, the, the demand for large numbers of children tends to come down anyway. Mm-hmm. But you know, there was, a, there was a, a long period of some degree of panic, and there was oversteer, and it turns out it's hard to steer back because now all of those incentives and attitudes are in place, and they're not going to be super easy to shake. And we hear things like the demographic imbalance in China, which is way too many men for women, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a consequence of the one-child family with a son preference persisting. That's true, and that's a problem in and of its own uh, in, in its own right. But in addition, educated urban women are actually having a hard time finding suitable mates. Uh, women go to college yeah. in large numbers, and they don't <laughs> want to marry down. Uh, and so, you know, it's sort of social economic status. So you do have this double whammy of the women whom I suspect in a Singapore-like fashion, the regime would most like to see reproduce, right. uh, can't find a husband. If they have a husband, they don't want children or they want one child. And so you know, it's really very hard to get it going. And, and the other thing, to, as Minyan mentioned, but it bears emphasis, is that for a lot of people who wanted two children, there already were ways. You know, in, in the countryside and sure. yeah. relatively thinly populated areas, the fall, policy had kind of fallen mm-hmm. apart or never been fully enforced. In urban areas, we'd relaxed it for for children of one-child families themselves. Oh, you can pay a fine. And people can pay yeah. a fine and get out mm-hmm. of it. And yeah. I mean, I have one friend who negotiated paying the fine of, of two years of the average income in his district yeah. rather than his income, and that's about you know, 10%. Right. So you know, there were ways around it. So some of that demand was already being taken up. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.